The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Now we've been going through the book of Acts passage by passage, and the next passage we come to is Acts 4, uh, looking at verses 1 through 31. And let's pray before we dive in here. Lord, as we think about you and what you have accomplished on the cross, and not the cross by itself, but the cross with the resurrection, Lord, what a hope we have, what a joy we have this morning, knowing that if we are in Christ, his victory is our victory, Lord. We just give you glory for that. We, we thank you, Lord, for the God that you are and for the victory you've won. And Lord, we pray that as we look at your word now, that you would help us not just to understand it, but to be changed by it, Lord. Open our minds to understand, but also open our hearts to receive everything that you have for us. Please, Lord, speak and move in a powerful way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, some of you may have heard the story late last year about the actress Ellen Page uh, coming out as transgender and now identifying as a man. Uh, the announcement indicates that Ellen will now go by the name Elliot and is doing this in order to, quote, pursue my authentic self. Now, as you might expect, of course, this announcement was widely applauded by the entertainment industry and beyond. Many influential figures uh, voiced their support for Ellen, now Elliot, uh, such as, for example, Hillary Clinton, who tweeted, it's wonderful to witness people becoming who they are. Congratulations, Elliot. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's interesting to contrast Elliot Page with another lesser-known figure uh, named Beckett Cook. Beckett Cook also believes he's found his authentic self, but has a story that's quite a bit different than Elliot's. In an article uh, published on the Gospel Coalition, he writes this. It's worth an extended quote. He says, with a highly successful career as a production designer in the fashion world, I lived as a fully engaged gay man in Hollywood. I had many boyfriends over the years, attended pride parades in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, and marched in innumerable rallies for gay marriage equality. My identity as a gay man was immutable, or so I thought. But in 2009, I experienced something extraordinary. I had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ while attending an evangelical church in Hollywood for the first time. I was invited by a stranger I met at a coffee shop the week before. I walked into the church as a gay atheist and walked out of it two hours later as a born-again Christian in love with Jesus. I was stunned by this reversal. Since then, I no longer identify as gay, but rather choose to be celibate because I believe God's plan and purpose revealed in the Bible is authoritative, 
true and good. Surrendering my sexuality hasn't been easy. I still struggle with vestiges of same-sex attraction. But denying myself, taking up my cross, and following Jesus is an honor. Any struggles I experience pale in comparison to the joy of a personal relationship with the one who created me and gives my life meaning. My identity is no longer in my sexuality. It's in Jesus. When I came out as a Christian to my friends in LA and New York, I was met with skepticism and in some cases, outright hostility. But it wasn't until my memoir was published in 2019 that all hell broke loose. My closest lifelong friends completely abandoned me. And my production design agency in Hollywood dropped me like a hot potato under the most vague and frivolous of pretexts, even though I was one of their top artists, earning them loads of money over the years. Of course, if my memoir had been a celebration of my gay identity, I would have had advertising and editorial clients beating down my door with even more job offers. In stark contrast to Elliot Page, who only gained approval and favor from celebrities and politicians, I lost both my dear friends and my livelihood. So it's quite the contrast, isn't it? Now here you have two people, Elliot Page and Beckett Cook, who both believe they've found their authentic self. Yet one is widely celebrated, while the other immediately, is immediately blacklisted. Kind of seems like a, a bit of a double standard, doesn't it? And it kind of is. I think Beckett Cook makes an excellent point when he asks in his article, specifically responding to that tweet from Hillary Clinton, is it really wonderful to witness people becoming who they are? Or is it only wonderful when the true self they discover fits the popular cultural narrative of the day? If Clinton knew my story, would she tweet support for me becoming who I am? Now, of course, my purpose this morning isn't to advocate for any kind of hatred uh, toward those in the trans community. Quite the opposite. In fact, I believe we should love them and pray for them. However, I do believe Beckett Cook's article is an excellent example and yet another reminder of the fact that Christians are outsiders in the world in which we live. And should expect to be treated as such. The Apostle Paul says it well when he writes in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. So the fact that we don't fit in here on earth shouldn't really surprise us since we don't, we don't really belong here anyway, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. Also, Jesus himself tells us what to expect in this world. In John 15, 18 and 19, he says to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. So if you want to be a Christian, be prepared to swim upstream for as long as you live on this earth.
And here in our main passage of Acts 4, we see the early Christians having to do just that as they try to live as faithful followers of Jesus. Now, you may remember that back in Acts 1.8, Jesus had given them a mission, right? He had given them the mission of being his witnesses in Jerusalem and all the surrounding regions around Jerusalem and even to the ends of the earth. And yet here in Acts 4, as they continue to pursue that mission, they begin to encounter significant opposition. And we might even say persecution for the first time. So, as we examine the narrative of Acts 4, we see that being a faithful witness requires supernatural boldness. That's the main idea that arises from this passage. Being a faithful witness requires supernatural boldness. Now, the immediate context here is that Peter and John uh, have just healed a crippled man and then used that miracle as a platform for sharing the gospel with the crowds that had gathered. The story then picks up in Acts 4, 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So Peter and John's preaching causes no small amount of agitation among the powers that be, including the priests who were you know, in charge of offering the sacrifices, the captain of the temple, who was sort of like the police chief of the temple complex, and the Sadducees, who were the wealthy aristocrats whom the Romans or to whom the Romans had delegated most of the governing authority in Jerusalem. And if you think about it, it's really not that difficult to uh, understand why they were so agitated. It's because these leaders were the very same ones who had led the charge for Jesus to be crucified for blasphemy. And now, you know, here Peter and John are saying all these outrageous things about Jesus resurrecting from the dead. I mean, if those claims were true and Jesus did actually raise from the dead, then it would be readily apparent that the leaders were the ones who were in error rather than Jesus. And, and his blood would, would be on their hands. And not only that, but the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection of the dead in the first place. Like for anybody. <laughs> they actually didn't believe in heaven or hell or angels or demons or anything supernatural. One commentator calls them the material rationalists of their day. So, in contrast now to, to the Pharisees who oppose Jesus mainly for reasons related to their own misguided religious convictions, the Sadducees opposed Jesus purely for political motivation. The Romans were allowing them to have a great deal of power and authority and influence, along with the wealth that went along with all of that, of course. And so they basically didn't want anyone to rock the boat, so to speak, and mess all of that up for them. They had a, they had a good thing going, and they didn't want people messing that up. And so that's the reason for their opposition. 
And then the story continues in verses 5 through 12. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel <laughs> that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So notice here the boldness that Peter exhibits. I mean, this guy does not beat around the bush or sugarcoat anything, does he? I mean, instead, he's very direct in telling the authorities exactly what's up. I love how he makes such good use of that second person pronoun, right? He describes Jesus as the one whom you crucify. Right? And says that he was the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So where do you think Peter got this boldness? Like, where did this guy who exhibited such lamentable cowardice before Jesus' crucifixion, you remember, and denying him three times, where did he get the boldness he now exhibits? Well, we see the answer right there in verse 8. It says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the same phrase that was used of the Christians back in Acts 2-4 when they were proclaiming the works of God in other languages to the crowds that had gathered for Pentecost. Same phrase. And here it simply refers to Peter being led and empowered by the Spirit for what we see him doing. It was also a fulfillment of what Jesus had told his disciples to expect in Luke 12, 11, and 12. He says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So what we see here in Acts 4 is Jesus coming through on his promise. He's supernaturally empowering Peter to speak with the boldness we see him exhibiting. And this is why I said that the main idea is that being a faithful witness requires what? Supernatural boldness, right? A boldness given by the Holy Spirit that enables us to do something we would otherwise be unable to do. And uh, you know, perhaps you've experienced that before. You know, I know there have been times when I've said something to someone and afterwards I thought to myself, you know, wow, well, that was pretty good. In fact, that, that was too good for it to just be something I came up with, right? It's like the Holy Spirit was putting those words into my mouth. And that's what was happening here in Acts 4. Peter was able to respond as he did because and only because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And the climax of Peter's message comes in verse 12, where Peter boldly declares, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, the neat thing in this verse that isn't really observable from an English translation is that the Greek word translated saved here in verse 12 is actually the same word Peter used back in verse 9 that's translated as healed or made well. In verse 9, Peter notes that they're asking him by what means this, this crippled man has been healed. And in the original language, the same word could refer to either healing or saving. And it's used by Peter in both ways, in verses 9 and 12, respectively. And so the crux of Peter's brief sermon here is a play on words. He's essentially saying, you asked me how this crippled man was saved from his physical infirmity, but I'll tell you how we can all be saved from our spiritual infirmity. And the way that's possible, of course, is through Jesus and him alone. As Peter clearly states, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, you and I and everybody in this world actually has a, a really big problem. We've rebelled against a holy and righteous God. And as a result of that rebellion, the Bible says that we are destined to face God's eternal judgment. That's what we deserve. And yet, there is good news. Extraordinary news, actually. And this God of uncompromising justice is also a God of unfathomable love. And in his love, God sent his own son, Jesus, to this earth in order to rescue us. And the way Jesus did that was by dying on the cross, taking on himself the judgment that we deserved. His death made atonement for our sins. And then three days later, as Peter so eloquently says, Jesus resurrected from the dead so that he's now able to save everyone who will put their trust in him to do that. And it's important to understand that that's actually the only way anybody can ever be saved. There's salvation in no one else, Peter states. So Jesus isn't just one way to heaven among many. He's the only way. And I realize that's not really a very popular thing to say in our pluralistic society. And the prevailing view of our society, of course, is that all religions are valid and that anybody who makes the kind of exclusivistic claim that Peter makes here in verse 12 is being terribly intolerant. And yet, if you reflect on the issue more deeply, exclusivism is unavoidable. Because think about what the modern pluralists are really saying. They're saying, my view of world religions and how they relate to each other is right, and every other view of how world religions relate to each other is wrong. 
So in condemning religious exclusivism, they're actually being just as exclusivistic themselves, right? They're excluding and usually even heaping scorn upon those who view religious matters differently than they do, which, by the way, happens to be the vast majority of people in this world. Like, if you go to the Middle East, for example, and and you suggest that all religions are equally valid, they're going to say, what are you talking about? Islam is the only true religion. Or if you go to many parts of China and suggest that that all religions are equally valid, they're going to say, what what are you talking about? Buddhism is the only true religion. And it would be the same for almost all other religions. So the cultural elites of the West are the only ones in the world, to, to my knowledge, that believe all religions are valid. So in reality, as I mentioned, they're being just as exclusive and just as narrow as those they're opposing by saying that their view of religion and how religions relate is the only right view. So that's why I say that exclusivism is unavoidable. And as Christians, God has given us the sacred calling to make these things clear to people and to propagate this message of salvation through Jesus alone. And Acts 4, as Acts 4 shows us, doing that requires supernatural boldness. It requires that we renounce the tendency that we so often have to try to fit in with this world and to, to go with the flow, as it were. I appreciate the way J.C. Ryle describes this tendency. He writes, Few seem to have any opinions of their own or to think for themselves. Like dead fish, they go with the stream and tide. What others think is right, they think is right. And what others call wrong, they call wrong too. They dread the idea of going against the current of the times. In a word, the opinion of the day becomes their religion, their creed, their Bible, and their God. Ryle then asks, if this is not slavery, then what is? A good question, indeed. Brothers and sisters, the the reality is that God has called us to love people. And when we allow concerns about what people might think about us to keep us from sharing with them the message that, that is the only hope they have for eternity, that's not a loving thing to do. That's actually an incredibly selfish thing to do. Loving people It requires that that we have such a burden for their souls that we're willing to run the risk of them rejecting us in order to at least make an attempt at leading them to Christ. Because there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We then read in the subsequent verses about how the Jewish leaders respond to Peter and John. Verses 13 through 17 record their deliberations. 
which result in what we read in verses 18 through 22. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was over more than 40 years old. So I love the way Peter and John respond there. <laughs> we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. I mean, they were so just gripped by the gospel message that they felt this inward compulsion to share it. They weren't able to stop themselves. It's kind of like if someone's really interested in a certain sport, maybe, like football. You know, what, what are they talking about almost constantly? Football, right? And that's because we naturally talk about what's most important to us. If something fills our heart, it naturally comes out in our conversations. And it's no different with the gospel. If the gospel doesn't have much of a grip on your heart, then honestly, it's, it's kind of hard not to view evangelism as a chore or perhaps even a burden. But if the gospel does fill your heart the way it should, then it's just going to naturally overflow into your conversations. And we see Peter and John testifying to that reality here in Acts 4. Yet, unfortunately, the Jewish leaders respond in a way that's all too predictable. They can't very easily punish Peter and John since the guy who was healed is standing right there in front of everybody as exhibit A of God's miraculous power. But the leaders nevertheless threaten them about what will happen if they keep on preaching. So how do you think, then, Peter and John and the other people in the Christian community respond to that? I mean, this is the first time that's recorded in Acts that they are facing outright persecution. So how do you think they respond? How would you respond? I know if it were me, I would probably ask God for protection, right? I would pray that the, the persecution would stop. And yet that's not what these Christians did. Instead of praying for protection, they pray for boldness. Look at verses 23 through 31. When they were released, Peter and John went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they, the rest of the Christian community, heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of, your father, of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, so here's their prayer, right? Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. 
while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So these Christians, they pray not for an end to the persecution, but for the boldness to bear up under it and to keep proclaiming the gospel. And notice here in their prayer, the mentality that's behind them praying in this way. They view the persecution they're facing in light of the sovereignty and supremacy of God. Notice how they address him in verse 24. Sovereign Lord. They understand that God is on his throne, ruling over this universe, and sovereignly orchestrating everything, even persecution, to accomplish his perfect will and according to his infinite wisdom. And that word translated as Lord that they use here is actually a rather uncommon title for God. It's not the word kurios, which is the, the typical Greek word translated as Lord, but an even stronger word, despotes, which appears only five other times in the New Testament. This word despotes is the word from which we get our English word despot and speaks of an absolute master with no limitation whatsoever on his power and authority. Also, these Christians note additionally that God's not only the ruler of this world, but the very one who created it in the first place. They describe him as the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So without question, God is sovereign and supreme over their adversaries. And even when their adversaries crucified Jesus, look at verse, what verse 28 says. They were simply doing whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Moreover, we can also see God's supremacy being displayed, not just in the prayer that these Christians pray, but also in the narrative of Acts 4 itself. And back in verse 4, we read that thousands more people were saved as a result of Peter and John's preaching. And so how interesting it is that even though the Jewish leaders fiercely opposed the gospel, they were powerless to stop it from spreading. God is indeed the sovereign Lord. And what a comfort that is whenever we face opposition. No matter what happens, we know that God's got it all under control. And not only that, but he's even working through it all to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Not only that, but we know that when all's said and done, anything that we might lose in this life as a result of being faithful to God's call in comparison to what we gain for the future. And that actually might be the best part of Beckett Cook's article. 
Peckett Cook, you'll recall, is the man who was formerly living a homosexual lifestyle, but then who encountered Jesus and was radically changed. And he writes, you know, we, we read it, about what becoming a Christian cost him. In contrast, Elliot Page, who received widespread applause for coming out as transgender, Beckett Cook lost both his friends and his livelihood. And yet he writes this later in the article. To be clear, I'm not complaining or claiming to be a victim. What I gained in Christ is absolutely priceless. Like the Apostle Paul, I'm learning to, quote, count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. A quote from Philippians 3.8. Yes, the loss of close friendships and a lucrative career were harsh. But being in the kingdom of God more than compensates. I am royalty an heir of God and fellow heir with Christ. In contrast to Elliot Page, my joy is not fragile in that it depends on the affirmation of others. My joy is secure because I am in Christ and thus favorable in the sight of God whose approval is all that really matters. Friends, it doesn't matter what we lose in this life as a result of our devotion to Jesus. It's all temporary anyway. Eternity is all that really matters. See, as Christians, we know the end of the story, right? We know that Jesus wins and that you and I, we're on the real right side of history and that we'll get to enjoy eternal pleasures in the presence of God infinitely outweigh anything we might lose on this earth. As one theologian has observed, what can earth do to you if you're guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less a scratch on a penny. What an encouragement to be a bold witness for Jesus. What a boldness we can have if we live in light of eternity. You know, it's been said that a person's only found something worth living for if they found something worth dying for. And never is that more true than when it comes to the gospel. 